I've lived my entire life in America. And by talking with a Frenchman for an hour, I learned things about my country I never knew. On today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves, we look at our own culture through the keen and observant eyes of a French philosopher. Bernard-Henri Lévy, or BHL as his countrymen call him, is back. He'll share more of his distinct take on our American culture, which he gained by traveling across the USA for the better part of a year. Because the great thing with travel, when you travel, and you know that, Rick, is that you take news from the others, of course, but it is a way to get information about yourself. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, it's Viva la Difference, as BHL and I celebrate the differences between our two great nations, as well as what we have in common. That and your travel questions are on the itinerary for today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. We're honored to have French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy back in our studio. Pondering our own culture through a French lens gives us insights we'd never get on our own. You'll see what I mean in a few minutes when we're joined by perhaps the most famous philosopher in France today, Bernard-Henri Lévy. First, we'll check in with your travel plans and find ways to get the most bang out of your vacation dollar. 877-333-RICK. That's our phone number. And you can always email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And we have Mel on the line in San Diego. Hi, Mel. Hi. Nice talking to you, uh, Rick. I, my question is, I have an intergenerational trip going. I have uh, two teenagers, 12 and 15, and we're going to take a 12-day river cruise from um, a location near Brussels to Basel, Basel. Should I try to look for something in that trip, which will be basically down the Rhine and the Moselle, uh, for something that teenagers would really like to do? Wow. You know, i got to be frank with you, Mel. I can't think of a worse thing for a 12-year-old and a 15-year-old to do but to be stuck on a boat for 12 days going from Netherlands down to Basel. We'll be on excursions <laughs> every day. Well, that's good. So you'll want to count that in because it's kind of a beautiful, relaxing trip for, I think, senior travelers or older travelers. But for a couple of kids, you'll want to make a point to give them some activities during the middle of the day. And that's mm-hmm. good. So you do have excursions. Um, rent bicycles when you get off. Remember, okay. the Rhine River was once lined with towpaths. And in the old days, they would float things down and have to drag them back up with donkeys. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these towpaths now are bike paths. I see. And they're just gorgeous. And you can get advice from every town you stop at. We'll have a tourist board, and they'll tell you where you can rent a bike. And either you can take the bike somewhere and drop it at a train station and take the train back, or you can bike somewhere and take the bike on the train and bike back. But all along the Rhine, you've got towpaths, you've got roads, and you've got train lines. And uh, it really makes a lot of sense to do a bike ride in conjunction with a train return. Wonderful. Also, you'll want to um, climb to some castles. It's, it's easy to look at castles from the river, but you want to make sure to get those kids up in the castles. Mm-hmm. And there's wonderful kid-friendly castle experiences all along the Rhine. Now, you're doing the whole Rhine, I think. Remember, the Rhine starts in uh, Lake Constance or the Bowdoin Sea in, in, uh, where Switzerland and Germany come together. The Rhine mm-hmm. River comes in as a little stream at one end of the lake, and it tumbles out as a big river at the other end. There's the Rhine Falls, which is the Niagara Falls of Europe, really, which is uh, mm-hmm. where the Rhine becomes navigable. And then from there it goes uh, winding along the border of France and Germany and up through the heart, industrial heartland of Germany all the way to uh, the biggest port in the world near Rotterdam. You'll see kilometer markings all along the river, big, huge placards, billboards that'll say, you know, 225. Well, that means 225 kilometers to the point where the Rhine becomes navigable after the Rhine Falls near that lake up in Switzerland. Mm-hmm. So the most interesting 50 miles of, of the stretch is the stretch between Frankfurt and uh, Koblenz, basically. And that's where okay. you got all the romantic... It's called the Romantic Rhine Gorge. 90% of the tourists' Rhineland memories are of that little stretch there between Koblenz and Bingen and Wiesbaden and so on. That's where all the famous castles are. Is that where Lorelei is? That's where the Lorelei is, yeah. So you're going to see the Lorelei. Uh, it's not going to do much for your kids. But you can stop at all the towns nearby there and hike up to ruined castles, and that'll be a lot of fun for the kids. That's a wonderful idea. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna, we are going to take a jog up to Amsterdam. Oh, that'll be interesting for the kids, yeah. 
from Amsterdam, you got all sorts of fun things. Too. You can bike from there out into the countryside for free. You can you got a boat that goes from the train station right across the harbor. Mm. And then in, within 15 minutes, you're biking through the what they call the polder land, you know, the reclaimed land underneath below sea level. Uh, what else for kids would be great in Amsterdam? Um, they've got Anne Frank's house. What a great opportunity for kids to learn about, uh, you know, what happens when things go uh, terrible with the government. You can learn about Anne Frank and be inspired by that. Amsterdam is it's a great walking city. It's a great city for photographers. Anything in particular uh, in for Rembrandt's um, 400th? Well, you can see all the Rembrandt paintings at the Rijksmuseum. The yes, real treat, right. the real treat is to go to Rembrandt's house, and mm-hmm. you can see his studio, and you can see the archive of his personal possessions that he left, which is quite intimate and fascinating, and you can see his engravings and the beautiful detail work that he did, and there's a man that even demonstrates how they did those engravings. So that's a very hands-on, interactive kind of uh, look at art history for kids at Rembrandt's house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is my laptop computer useful in Europe? You know, I'm, su- I'm surprised how many people bring laptops with them. If your laptop has Wi-Fi or you can get online uh, through your modem, uh, the kids will appreciate being able to have computer access from the boat or from your hotels. If you can, you know, email your tour company. If you can get online on the boat with your laptop, that's going to be a huge thing if your kids are into email and, and, and getting online or if your grandkids yes, are into that. And I always travel with a laptop, and charging it up is very easy. The cord comes with a, a converter built in, so you don't even need to worry about that. Just make sure you've got the adapter for the European plugs. That's the one with two little, uh, two little round uh, prongs. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Well, one, one thing, if I may have a little bit more time, is that the boys are, uh, I like to get them engaged with uh, filmmaking because they're both into family films. So we're going to take a movie camera with us, and I'd like them to do what's of interest to them. I'm going to take all kinds of mini cassettes, and then we'll put them on CDs when they go back. You are one cool grandpa. <laughs> wow, you. that's exciting. I wish my grandpa did that with me. Uh, could you could you get a um, an editing program on your laptop so they could edit as they go? Oh, that's a good idea. I'll have to ask them. It would really mm-hmm. be worth it, uh, Mel, if you're going to do that. They're going to probably get one anyways. Bring it along. It'll give them endless hours of entertainment. And, yes. Uh, I think that's just a, a thrilling idea. Thank you very much. Well, gosh, Rick, thanks so much for the advice. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Have a great time. Let us know how your trip goes with your grandkids. You know, my, I certainly will. Uh, my first trip, my, my dad and mom took me to Europe when I was 14. I didn't want to go. I got over there and I realized, wow, this is cool. Different candy, different pop, oh. statuesque women with hairy armpits. It's a wonderland <laughs> for a little teeny bopper. <laughs> so Madonna didn't shock you at all? Not a uh, bit. I, I, <laughs> I wish, I, now I'm envious of you. I wish I'd gotten to go to Europe that early. <laughs> all right. Have fun. Thanks again. Okay, bye now. Bye now. We have Matt on the line from Chicago. Hi, Matt. Hey, Rick. How are you doing today? Great. Thanks for your call. Yeah, thank you so much for offering this forum and also for all the interesting experiences that uh, my wife and I have had as a result of your research. I appreciate it. Great to hear. Travel's fun, isn't it? Oh, it's the best. The best. The best way to bond, I think. Yeah. Well, I have a question for you. We love to travel in the shoulder season, and uh, we even go as far out as Thanksgiving and have had some really great experiences on Thanksgiving in in the Swiss Alps and Paris and Seville, Spain. And I was wondering, you know, one, I'm uh, curious what you think about that idea and, you know, great things to do. We were thinking about going to Scotland maybe this year and doing either Edinburgh in the Highlands or Edinburgh in York. And I know the weather isn't good, but the flights are so cheap. And, and as long as things are open, you know, you kind of have the city to yourself to really experience it and the people. And uh, I'd be curious what you think about that and, and any other ideas you have for interesting European travel over the Thanksgiving holiday. Boy, I'll tell you, you know, off-season is becoming more and more popular for more and more people. And I'm just looking at my climate chart here to see what kind of weather you're going to encounter. And, you know, if I'm looking at uh, Britain, for instance, the weather is mild all the time. And it's going to have between, I'm looking at the chart here, it's between 16 and 20 days of rain all year long. So uh, in Britain, you know, the, the key there is there's no, no bad weather, just inappropriate clothing. Expect rainy <laughs> weather any time of the year. And it can get bitter cold, but generally it's going to be in the 50s, I would say, or the 40s. You know, you can manage off-season. The big downside of off-season travel is the days get uh, shorter. And uh, a lot of the attractions are kind of quiet or just sort of um, in low gear. They kind of hibernate. So if you're looking for 
the live uh, marching bands and the uh, artisans doing their crafts and special tours available in English, you'll want to go in peak season or, or tour season and endure the crowds and the, and the heat. But if you're trying to just kind of go under the radar and enjoy the cultures in an intimate kind of no-tourist-crowds way, I think off-season is wonderful. And as you said, the uh, airfares are really so cheap. I flew over to Amsterdam just for a quick winter getaway. It was in December. Or, no, I guess it was in late November, and it was a great trip. And to be landing and wandering through Amsterdam with everybody uh, in their mittens and uh, the winter sort of scene there, I was really charmed by it. So, you know, if you don't mind the shorter days and the colder weather, the main thing is just to dress like you're skiing almost. You want to be outdoors at, for great stretches of time. Therefore, you want to have warm shoes and hats and mittens and so on. But I'm a big fan of going off-season these days. I'll tell you what the interaction we've had with some of the local people during that time. It seems like maybe they're a little less overwhelmed with the, the tourists that have come, and, and oh. they, you know, they are a little more open maybe to meeting and greeting us because we do travel as much as we possibly can during the year. And, and the people we've met over that kind of Thanksgiving holiday or those November trips, whether it's in Ireland or in Spain, or I particularly remember in, in Switzerland, in Lauterbrunnen, we ended up bunking down with a family that we had met, uh, you know, taking the car up to the top of the hill. And it was, it was just an amazing experience to, to meet them and meet some Australians that were traveling, and they were all interested in the Thanksgiving holiday and what it meant to us. And, oh, yeah. and they actually fixed us, a, fixed us a Thanksgiving dinner, which was just the most amazing thing. They were just so hospitable. It was amazing. You know, that's a very fair uh, conclusion to draw, is that people are, have more time for you. They're a little less aggressive. They've made their money, you know, during the peak season. And they're just, it's a little more laid back and relaxed if you, uh, connect, if you like to connect with people by traveling in the off-season. Now, one last thing. Would you, if you had your way at that point, we were thinking of, of flying and, and trying to get to Edinburgh first. We definitely want to see Edinburgh. But would you rather that trip to Edinburgh and move up to the Highlands and experience that? Or we've never really experienced northern England and do Edinburgh, and it's not too long a train trip, I don't think, down to York and some of the, the northern part of that. Boy, you know, I'd vote for uh, Edinburgh to the south. Um, uh, unless you're really into Scotland, I find that the um, the sightseeing north of Edinburgh is is uh, it's beautiful, it's dramatic, but there's there's not that many particular sites that you'll remember as much as going south and enjoying uh, Durham or York. York, I think, is one of the great cities in Europe, and you could very easily go from Edinburgh down to London, stopping at the Hadrian's Wall. Durham Cathedral, right. uh, York, wonderful city, York, and even Cambridge before hitting into London. I want a little, give you a little warning, Matt. I, I used to always say Edinburgh, but you don't want to pronounce that G on the end. Uh, it's Edinburgh. 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 Yeah. That's, uh, I've, I've embarrassed myself so many times, and I have a tough time with the pronunciations, and that's one I'm working on myself. Um, Edinburgh really has a lot of charm. If you want to connect with today's Scotland, remember, less than an hour away from Edinburgh is Glasgow. And it doesn't. Right. It's a it's a workaday city. It's sort of Andy Cap town, you know. And it's got some great architecture. And it's sort of the I believe it's it's been the cultural capital of Europe recently, uh, in that sort of a, a local f- sort of celebration of its culture. And it's a, a brilliant way to get another sort of dimension of Scotland in your travels. And it's a very easy day trip from uh, Edinburgh, which is hands down the best stop in Scotland. That's a great idea. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for the inspiration and keep up the good work. Matt from Chicago. Thank you very much for your call. Thank you, Rick. Bye. Coming up, French philosopher Bernard-Henri Lévy joins us as we psychoanalyze the cultural differences between France and America. Through the observations of this fascinating Frenchman, we'll see what makes French and American cultures so distinctive. It's up next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. And today, we're learning from a French philosopher. Bernard-Henri Lévy has written 30 books. His latest guidebook is American Vertigo, A Journey in the Footsteps of Tocqueville. Monsieur Lévy has traveled for nine months in the United States in 2004, and now his book is in bookstores. And American Vertigo is a look at America from a French point of view, and uh, it's designed so French people, uh, Monsieur Lévy's countrymen, can learn more about our country, and it's published in English so we can learn about our country from a French point of view. Monsieur Lévy, thank you for being with us. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. Back. Yeah. Now, um, it's uh, to me as a tour guide, it's a challenge to get my tourists primed so they can come to France and understand France rather than misunderstand France. And in your experience in traveling around America, I think there's a lot of unintentional misunderstandings that cause people to not connect from an awareness point of view. Uh, of course. I would even say more than misunderstanding. I believe that between two peoples, Americans and French, for example, you have a wall. A wall of what? An immaterial wall an abstract wall, a wall of cliches, a wall of préjugés, a wall of commonplaces, a wall of uh, preconceived ideas. It is like a wall. And it's it, a big problem. Yes, it seems to be like uh, like a wind, like a, like a, like a smoke or like a, or like a fog, but it is smoke and fog. It is smog. You have a smog, a smog of préjugés, a smog of cliché, which is thin, which is very thin, which uh, is uh, consistent, which prevents us to have a fresh eye on each other's. Now, if we're coming to your country, a lot of times there's just simple misunderstandings. In America, fast service is good service. When I go to France, fast service is rude service, I think, in a restaurant. Is that true? It is true. I am a bad judge, a bad witness, because I like fast service. Ah. In this way, I'm more American than French. I hate the fact of staying two hours, three hours at the table, waiting for the dishes and so on. So much lost time. I am American, but you are, you but, are right. But the French waiter, he's respecting you to let you sit for in a In America time. too, in America too. It is fast service, but with respect. No, no, respect. You, we cannot say that. With, and sometimes in France, you have slow service with disrespect. Okay, so there's a respect undergirding that's essential. Uh, we have, there's subtleties that a lot of Americans miss. When you step into a shop in France, it's, I think it's flat out rude not to say bonjour, monsieur. And when you leave, au revoir, or is that changing now? Uh, they say bonjour and they say au revoir. Yeah, that's different, I think. And here it's not. They do. It's, so these are innocent mistakes that people made just from not understanding the, the cultural differences. To me, there's an interesting thing about how a society works together. There's this social contract idea. Rousseau is uh, famous for people working together. I'm not, you're a philosopher, I'm not, and maybe you can help me here. But my understanding of the social contract is everybody gives up a little bit of freedom so they can all live together happily. Absolutely. It's exactly that. You are not a philosopher, but you got the point, my I got dear the point. Exactly. Now, exactly. is that Rousseau? That's classic Rousseau? It is Rousseau. Classic Rousseau. Co social contract. Exactly. Now, how does Locke and Rousseau different in their approach to the social contract? It's different. Uh, Locke, Locke doesn't speak so much about the social contract. He spoke about habeas corpus. He spoke about individual rights. In the, the rugged individualism. Individual, individual, individual rights. Because Indi my hunch is American culture is inclined to embrace Locke, whereas European culture, which is easier with socialism, embraces Rousseau. Exactly. You are the country of the individual's uh, fr individual freedom, I the sovereignty of the individual. You are the country who resists, for example, too much presence or too much role of the state because of that you have a distrust toward the state and you're the guys Ma who maybe pay. too much maybe too much distrust you have and we we have something to tell you about that maybe at the reverse we have too much confidence in the state and maybe you have something to teach us we should uh, sit around the table you american us french with our experience of the relationship the relationship between individual and state there is half to take in your experience half to take in ours and the two together, we could have a good pattern. Because you guys pay so much, so such high taxes, and you're willing to do this, whereas we are anti-tax. We are anti-tax too. We want, as we say in France, le beurre et l'argent du beurre, the butter and the money of the butter, which means that we would like to have the healthcare system, the yeah. welfare state, and so on, without paying the price. You want the cake and eat it too. The cake and eat it too, exactly. But the, I, I, the, the American version of le beurre et l'argent du beurre, the, the cake and eat it too. We and, want the cake and, and eat it too. And you want the butter too. and you want the money it takes to buy the butter. Exactly. Ah, uh, voilà. Now, 
I think that in America, we have this thing, we've got two, op- two options, big bad government or little good government. You, you, have a middle, you have a middle way. You have a middle way. And you had, at the beginning of America, at the time of the founding fathers, you had this debate, and people like George Washington, they, they, they designed a way which is exactly in the middle of the two, okay. and which is a good way. But the French have a different option, which is big, good government, I think. Yeah. That's an option. In France, if you pay high taxes, you would expect big, good, good government. government. Good government, good government, absolutely. It does not mean that we reach it. It does not mean that we have a good government. Sometimes we have just an obese government. <laughs> obese, right. Obese, yes. Our French obesity, which is obesity of the government. But the, the goal is what you say. But your government goal, is quite active. You tried to have a 35-hour work week recently. What happened have, to that? You we, failed We have it. That. We have it. We have 35 hours which I think is a mistake. We should have a law which could allow people who want to do more to do more. There's a limit, actually, for 35 Of course, of course. Really? You are obliged. So the government decided... The decided to cut at 35. And if you want to work wow. more, if you want to get to earn more money, you are, you are not authorized. You are not allowed. This is a mistake. That's a problem. This is the limit... <laughs> of the overstressing of the role of the state. It's a good example. Good to give the possibility to a, peop- to a people who wants to be quiet. Do mm-hmm. Good to give the possibility to remain at 35. But if I want to, to work more, I should be allowed. You also have very long vacations, I think, dictated by the government. Dictated by the government, obliged, low. Uh, if I, What's the standard vacation? I, yes, if I, have, um, if I am in a company and I want to take two weeks of vacation only, I will be sued by the by by the company by the syndicate by the union. Forced relaxation. You must relax. Uh, exactly. But exactly. and I think France actually invented the concept of vacation. I mean, Club Med is a French. Club company. Med is a French. Yes, yes. And you had the uh, the gender of Karl Marx. Karl Marx had a gender called Paul Lafargue, the husband of his daughter. You know, the the uh, Karl Marx had a daughter. She married a Frenchman called. Paul Lafargue, a, a great socialist leader in France of the 19th century. And he wrote a book called Le Droit à la Paresse, The Right to Laziness. Ah. The Right to Laziness. Accusing all his fellow socialist uh, friends to be too much involved in work, 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 uh, to be too much involved in the, in the story of uh, uh, having a, a different system of work and so on. She say, he said, please, Paul Lafargue said, please, oh. let's stop with work. Let's ask the right to laziness. This is the only true revolutionary right. This is a very French topic. And that's very subversive where I come from. And it is subversive. I'm talking with Bernard-Henri Lavie. He's a French philosopher. He's finished traveling around the United States for nearly a year. He's written a book called American Vertigo, A Journey in the Footsteps of Tocqueville. His name is a household word in France. He's written 30 books, and he is sharing his take on France for us Americans planning to go to France, and we'll get a better understanding of the two cultures. You know, we're talking about the French having a short work week, a, a, a by law required long vacation, and there's also this little beautiful private time between work and when you go home. In France? Yeah. Yes. Does that, is, does, the, that doesn't exist here. We have to go straight home. Tell me about this special magic private time. This is a good side, yes, of a French way of, of living, a sort of magic hour between the two, yes, and in an intermediary uh, area. And also, I would say that we cut, really, between the, the work and the, and the private life, there is a real break. In America, I see so many people who don't forget their work and their comrades of work and so on when they are on leisure and when they are on private life. In France, we forget. You can have a best friend on your work, when you go home, you cut completely. You shut, you close the shutters. You are in another space, in another temporality, is in another life. There is this idea of two separate lives, the life of privacy and the life of work. America, you are a Protestant country, uh, and the, the border between privacy and the rest is, and the public life and the professional life is less well-defined than in France. So there's something sacred. I have a French friend, and when we were going to be working during lunch, this was an example of, of uh, breaking that sacred time. Absolutely. You don't... Sa- sacred and secret. Sacred and secret, yeah. Sacred and secret. Now, 
In Europe, right now, you're struggling with quite an interesting evolution as, as you decide how, how united you want to be, the European Union. Is this just a way for France and Germany not to have another war? I would say that uh, the European Union, yes, might be considered as that. Bottom line. I I, mean, that's bottom the... line. But, but I don't believe that we will build another big, huge, supplemental nation. Not a United States. Of United States, no. But we are building an engine. We are building a motor. We are bi building a, a machine which has two functions, two tasks, two roles. Number one, prevent war, create peace. Number two, weaken tyrannies, uh, dictatorship, and promote democracy. Look at Portugal. Look at Spain. Look at Greece. They were authoritarian states with crypto-fascist uh, regimes. Europe had the precise task to dissolve, to ruin these fascism. So wow. uh, Europe is a machine which main function is to, to bring to the peoples peace and democracy. Quite this effective. is the role of, of Europe. Quite effective. Portugal has no choice but to exactly. be a modern democracy. Exactly. Wow. I am European for that. I'm not European because I feel that we have to, 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 to forget our Frenchiness. I'm not European because I believe that we have to suppress the borders between nations. No, I am European because I believe that it is the only way to bring in the world and in our world. And for example, tomorrow in Turkey, Turkey, peace and democracy. You know, for example, I am often asked... So that's asked, a rationale for bringing Turkey into the EU? It just exactly. It enforces democracy on that Exactly. Country. I wow. am often asked, are you in favor of Turkey coming in Europe? Yeah. My answer is, I'm not, I'm not going to make a big abstract. If Europe can help Turkey to, to be 100% faithful to human rights, to recognize her crime in the Armenian genocide to embrace the European conception of democracy and so on, then I'm in favor. And if Europe can be, can serve to this, if Europe can have this utility, right. vive l'Europe. That's, that's very big. And is that a, are those preconditions for Turkey to join? No, they are not. So but that's I, how I you hope they will be. Yeah. I hope they will be. But then, you, right now you're dealing with this Polish plumber problem. When that, that, I think that's a French advertising slogan or something where you've got all of these Eastern Europeans who are new members of the European Union. They're flooding the West and working cheaper than Western workers, and that's a problem. If Turkey joins, wouldn't you have a, a, even a worse Polish plumber problem? My dear... I, I, I met um, the life made that this last year I had many times to call a plumber, many times, three or four times, maybe five times my wife and me. We never met a Polish one. This is a myth. This is a xenophobic myth. The plumbers, they are still French. The, those poor Polish, what is the hell with that? They are just uh, uh, joining Europe, joining democracy. It was absolutely disgusting but to I don't accuse mean, them. No, no, yeah, no. I don't, don't. Mean, I don't mean literal, but I mean you have a problem of, of workers coming in and underbidding French labor, don't you? No, of course not. Okay. The, okay. the salaries remain high. The unions remain powerful. It's not the point. Okay. And I would add that we owe that. We owe it to the Eastern Europe workers. We, we abandoned them during so many years. We left them to their bad fate. At the end, after 40 years of slavery, we accept them in Europe, even if it costs us a little we have to pay the price, as, as the German did, I was going to say, way. the West Germans paid the price to bring Eastern Germany up to speed. And it is great to do that. And it you was, have a grand, it was a depth. You have it, a grand European vision of it that. Wa it was a depth. The Western Germans had this depth toward the Eastern German. And you think Europe in general has a depth towards Eastern Europeans? Of course. The same way. Is, is this idea unusual? Or are you mainstream with this thinking? I'm not mainstream. I but think you're it, enlightened, but are you mainstream? Right? I'm not mainstream, but I don't believe that I'm a, a, an exception. I think that we are numerous to believe that the way we acted toward uh, Eastern Europe was a pure scandal. Right. The fact of resigning, of accepting that uh, half of Europe would belong to another civilization will remain for centuries for to mm -hmm. for the for the next ages under the boot of the of a dictatorship was purely disgusting so we have to repair and frankly 
it does not cost us a lot. No. It does not cost no. us a lot. I repeat, I did not see, I did not meet one single Polish plumber in the last years. Very good. Is another reason for Europe to be uniting is just to compete with the United States in creating a big free trade zone? We have it already. The free trade zone, we don't need the next construction of Europe to have it. We have it. We have the euro. That's true. We have the free trade zone. We can remain like that. And your economy in Europe is bigger than America's economy. The economy is good. The euro is strong. I mean, you have a bigger GDP than the United Absolutely. States. Absolutely. Absolutely. We could stop moving. If if the game, if the, the, the target was only to compete with America... We made it. Okay. it. If we have to proceed, if you have to keep, if we have to keep moving, it is for the reasons I told you before. Not competition with America, but build, improving the democratic state of the world. Why did the Constitution fail? It was recently voted down. Is this just a, a temporary setback? I hope so. I hope so. It failed because we had, um, as I say, American vertigo. It was our European vertigo. We had a sudden vertigo in front of the task of the stake, of the proceeding way of uh, all that, the idea of abandoning part of our identity, we were afraid. There was a sort of uh, ultimate frightness in front of the void, in front of the emptiness. Uh, you know, too big of a step, too new, fast. Yeah, maybe. S- spinning around and getting... I busy. was against, I, I was in favor of the Constitution, against uh, the no, but I can understand it. But since 1947, I think Euro visionaries have been trying to convince Europeans to trade away sovereignty for real power for Europe, right? It's yes, a, it's yes, a trick yes. to, to it, co- it is talk a trick, and they this. achieved partly, and there was a stop. I hope that will, it will be a provisional stop. My uh, observation, Monsieur Levy, is that as Europe unites, the regions are more free to wave their flags. When I first started traveling in France, I believe if somebody in Brittany had a child and named them a Celtic name, they would lose their French citizenship. Today, that would be laughable. Absolutely. You are totally right. Good observation. The, you have two levels of, uh, so of identity. You have the European's level, the regional level, and the national level. If the intermediary level weakens, yeah. it will be for the benefit of the two others. So historically, in our generation, the national level is withering away, and we have Catalonian people in Barcelona exactly. not threatening Madrid, and Britain people not threatening Paris. And you will have Catalonia coming closer and feeling uh, closer links with uh, French Pays Basque, you know? Yeah. Uh, you, you will have some new brotherhoods, some new fraternities across the present borders between peoples who are very Struggling. much alike. You see that in Northern Ireland. You see Catalonian and Basque tourists in Ulster. Exactly. It's, an, it's, it's very strange. You don't see Basque and Catalonian people in big numbers elsewhere, but there's an affinity for people who are struggling against... I did not know that, but I'm, I'm glad to learn. I'm it's glad interesting. to learn. In, in uh, Catholic communities in Northern Ireland, they fly the um, Palestinian flag, uh-huh. and in Protestant communities, they fly the Israeli flag. Uh-huh. It's very interesting. Devant la caserne, quand le jour s'enfuit, la vieille lanterne soudain s'allume et lui. Our conversation with Bernard-Henri Lévy continues in just a moment. We'd love to hear your comments in response to what you're hearing on the show today. Look for the feedback link in the radio page at ricksteves.com and share your thoughts. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Gillian Chadwick, a Blue Badge Guide from London, and I travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with Bernard-Henri Lévy. He is the author of American Vertigo, A Journey in the Footsteps of Tocqueville. This is a book that Monsieur Lévy, who's a philosopher from France, has written after a nine-month tour around the United States, taking an analytical look at the differences between our two cultures. We have a lot of angst in, in Europe and in, in the world with Islam, and I'd like to just talk briefly about, about the Islamic challenges that Europe has. Europe is a geriatric continent with the people who live there. And many people say if Europe doesn't get um, progressive about taking in other cultures, other religions, Europe will just be in an old folks' home and pretty soon be not much of a factor anymore. Is that your take on this? And is that a reason to uh, work with Islam? It is absolutely true. If we had not this uh, population of immigrants, we, were th- we, we would be dead. 
uh, we would be out of blood and out of breath. Wow. You know, this is the reality. We, we, we don't make uh, some ch- in our children. Uh, the renewal of the generation is not, um, is not done, so we need this immigration. Is that just now, because educated, affluent Europeans don't multiply very, very much? They just choose to have because less children? Because of that, because of a sort, there is a, strong, uh, a strange climate, atmosphere of depression, of uh, nervous breakdown going on in Europe since a few years, which uh, maybe is not very favorable to the fact of making children, I don't know, without being too yeah. rude. <laughs> but now... Uh, the fact that we have to have some immigrants, uh, it is not the end of the story. The end is, number one, to integrate them properly, which we don't do enough. And number two, when we make the effort to integrate them, not to tolerate, not to tolerate the growth of Islamism, for example, on, on, our, on our soil, not to tolerate a, a sort of a, a rude and violent uh, attitude toward, uh, against uh, the way of being French and so on, then the political problem uh, begins. That's what I mean. Have some immigrants, it's one thing, but we have to deal politically with that. And to deal politically with that, it means, for example, to to defend and to support the moderate Muslims, the democratic Muslims, those Muslims who want Islamism being a question of faith and of intimacy against the fundamentalist, the theocratic, the real clash of civilization of today. Okay, so support the, the moderate Muslims who will send their girls to school without the head without Start. of course so you would you would support the french law strong law yeah. against religious absolutely headgear. absolutely number one because the veil is not a religious sign in france it is a political one yeah. number two because this political sign means not liberty but, but slavery it is a slavery it is a veil imposed by the the fathers and the brothers to the young girls it is not a free act it is not a free choice And number three, because the school in the Republican tradition in France is a space of learning freedom, of uh, uh, learning that the roots which you have is not the last word of your identity, it is the first one. The first one is your roots. The last one is something else, which you have to be taught at school. And to be taught that, it means to take the veil off. Exactly like for the little Breton, the little children from Bretagne 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted to come to school with sabots. How do you call sabots? These wooden shoes. Right. You know, sabots. The Celtic shoes, the wooden shoes. Yeah. Wooden shoes, yes. No, the school said, no, you have to put real shoes. So that's forced or assim- maybe assimilation. They wanted people yeah, to assimilate. A part of it. Then you, you have to keep your, your, your memory. You have to keep your pride. You have to keep your, your roots. You have to keep all that but also to assimilate to the, to the community, exactly as you do in America. Yeah. In America, you can be uh, an African-American, a Native American, um, uh, an Arab, a Jew, and you are an American patriot. So this you, is you the achieve, challenge. You achieve the chemistry, which we don't always achieve so well. So the challenge for the French government is to find a way to have the Muslim community willingly assimilate. Exactly. Which is not, which is often the case, but not always. Is that a realistic hope? I think so. I think that if you, if we really try to deal with that, if we really try to to recognize also our own mistakes, because you cannot ask to these guys to recognize their mistakes if you don't do for yours. We 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 are guilty of some racism toward our Muslims. So, number one, you have to recognize this. We have to, to find the remedies against, uh, against this racism, and then we have to ask them to be faithful. I'm speaking with Bernard-Henri Lévy. He's a philosopher and a journalist. He's written 30 books in France, and he's written a book that is of great interest to Americans, and it's available in French and English, American Vertigo, A Journey in the Footsteps of Tocqueville. Monsieur Levy traveled around our country for nine months in the year 2004. American Vertigo is in the bookstores. I want to just finish our interview by letting uh, you be our French tour guide for a few minutes, if you don't mind. I'll just ask you, ask you some questions about things that I find confusing as an American visiting your country. Um, profound France. We think of, and as an American, I want to find la France profonde, you say. Yeah. What, does, what does that mean and where is it? I don't like this sentence. Uh, it is. It has a very bad uh, political um, act of birth. You know, it is the French r- extreme right who opposes la France réelle 
et la France officielle. Huh. The real France, the deep France, and ah. the official and the abstract France. So I don't like it that so much. That has political overtones. I didn't know yes, that. Yes, yes, it has. But France Profonde is just What France. What if I say you would rather not uh, a tourist have a quintessential France in mind? This is okay. La quintessence okay. de la France. Okay. Quintessence. Oh, that's yeah. good. I'll change my vocabulary yeah. then. Okay. Le quintessential? Yeah. Is la that quintessence French? de la France. La quintessence de, de la France. France. Yes. Où, où where is that? <laughs> Everywhere. Everywhere. Everywhere where you have people who are... Uh, who have a real knowledge of their own culture. The terroir. The terroir is an interesting concept in but wine also, and with people, also with in culture. The cities, also in the cities. You have quintessence de la France also in Paris, also in Bordeaux. Urbanity belongs to this quintessence. This would be a cliché. To believe that the quintessence is only in the terroir would be a cliché. Okay, good Quintessence point. is also in Toulouse, also in Paris. I see in your book, you speak about uh, Notre Dame, about Le Marais, and so on. This is quintessence. Beautiful. When I'm traveling in France, I love a cheese plate. We don't get that in, on menus here. Is the cheese plate in the French restaurant, is that becoming less popular? Is that vanishing? Uh, in France? Yeah. No, it is still there. It's still there. In the good restaurants, you have a big cheese, ca- cheese plate with, uh, with so many different uh, cheeses we are, which, are, which come from every part of the country. We used to say that every area of France produces her own cheese and that this is a sort of pride. Why not? Why so not? a complete meal still comes with that for a lot yeah, of people. Yeah, yeah. That's good. I've noticed there's fewer topless bathers on the beaches in France. Is that because of a conservative prudishness or a more of a recognition of the danger of skin cancer? I did not notice it. I don't know. You haven't <laughs> I, noticed it? No. Okay. You, are, you, are, you see, it's like, like me for American Vertigo. You know France better than I am, than, than I do. When you have a fresh, candid, foreign eye, you have better information than, than the intimate Uh, day-to-day, day-after-day observation. There's a lot to that. That's interesting. Americans are charmed by the movies Amelie and Chocolat. We just love those. It's our our quintessential France, really. Are there any movies that charm French people about American culture in a similar way? Westerns. Westerns. Yes, of course. They belong to the, for us, to the very identity. You cannot understand the American space, sense of space, Ivan city of space without the Westerns. I took 1,000 people to France this last year on my different tours that I lead. And I'm concerned because they spend their hard-earned money on their vacation. I want to know how they're received by the local people, regardless of the differences between our countries politically. I asked them after their trip, were you received warmly? Was there any problem? Nobody reported any coldness or rudeness of from course. the French people. Of course. I was taking a tour of a little family winery in southern France, and you know how these wonderful mom-and-pop wineries take visitors around? There was 10 people on the tour, maybe four Americans and six people from around Europe. The language of the tour was English, and she said, before we start, uh, we've got some Americans here. I want to just say publicly that we still are thankful for America for freeing us from the tyranny of, of Nazism and Hitler and so on. A lot of Americans are upset because they, they think if France disagrees with us, we're not thankful for D-Day. I mean, that's absurd, I think. My dear, I, as for myself, I belong to a family. My, my father was a freedom fighter against the Nazis during the war and before that a freedom fighter in the International Brigade in Spain during the Civil War. Since I was in, age of, in the age of understanding it, he told me, he taught me that if I was alive, if I was alive, if I had been born, it was because and thanks to America. Wow. My father was a Jew. If America had not liberated France, even freedom fighter as he was, he would have been finished to be caught, to be captured and to be killed. I, w- I would not be born. I was born in 1948 after the war because of the American army. So since my childhood, I paid homage and I was grateful to the American army. For me, the, f- the, the, the GI, the G- yeah. I, I know that today you have some people who identify GI with the worst of the world and so on. You know, GI in Iraq. For me, the image of the GI is forever till the day of my death identified to the liberty and to the resistance to tyranny. It will be like this all my life. 
On the reverse, on the reverse, I can tell you that I met so many people in America who know, who remember, even if it is further, they remember of the time where they were uh, slave people belonging to an empire. There was a colony. America was a colony in the hands of an empire, which was the English empire. And they remember, they know, because they learned at school that their ally at this time, the ally who helped them to decolonize oh, yeah. themselves was whom? The French. Yes, you were the, the first to recognize, I think, Of course, the French to recognize, the yeah. first to be at your side. American people know that. They listened, they, they learned that at school. Even the most simple people know that. They know that we have some links together which is absolutely impossible to break. You were born in 1948. I know many Europeans named Johnny or Frankie. As old as you, the same age. Exactly. And exactly. they were named after GIs. After GIs. Do you I know this in France also? Oh, of course I know. <laughs> I remember my mother who was, she is now, she passed, uh, she passed by, but my mother who was a charming, a charming lady, young until the end. When she told me about the GIs in 45, 46, before, before my birth, she told me, with so much emotion mm. and so much gratitude. They were really mm. the embodiment, the very face mm. of the liberty. For our generations, my fathers and myself, America is the very face of liberty, of resistance to tyranny. That is why I am so angry when I hear some more young people in France doing some stupid identification and saying that because of the maybe mistake of a current administration who said that America is an imperialist country or even a fascist country, this is disgusting. You cannot say that. It is an insult. That's why you, you call us. yourself anti-anti-American. Okay. That, and that is why I wrote my book. Right. American Vertigo is a book written in reaction to this disgusting way of thinking. We call our flag the red, white, and blue. Does that bother you? Because you have the same colors on your flag. It's okay. I'm ready to share that with America. We, sh we share so much. Let's share that too. Merci, monsieur. Is the, what is the state of tax evasion in France? Is it still a national pastime? Europe, ah. Europeans are very clever about not paying their taxes. Unfortunately, yes, we are. We are very good at that, and unfortunately proud of it, which is uh, disgusting because it is a, a lack of duty. It is a lack of citizenship. Uh, the more the poorest pay the price, not the richest, and it is disgusting. But it is a national sport very often, not always. No, don't be careful about the caricature, but sometimes. Okay, in America. I feel the attention span is getting shorter. I'm thankful we're on public radio here because we assume our listeners have a longer attention span. You're a journalist. Do you find that same problem in France where everything has to be fast and sound bites? Exactly the same. And maybe, maybe sometime more. Look at your show. Look at your show. Radio show. We have time. Look at Charlie Rose on the TV. We have not a French Charlie Rose. You don't have a French Charlie Rose. Of course not. We have not a serious program where you can have half an hour of quiet speech gathering great attention on my book tour in America. So many people, one out of two or three who come from to give me my book to sign, they tell me, I saw you in Charlie Rose. We, we don't have that any longer in France. We had Bernard Pivot, who is no longer on air, and uh, your Bernard Pivot has a name. He's Charlie Rose, but he's still <laughs> going on. So he's this, still going on. So this American fast-paced life, fast food culture, it's, it's creeping into France. Exactly. On this ground, surely. I'm, uh, mm -hmm. I'm definite. Are the children, the teenagers, hanging out at McDonald's in France, and it's not considered an American restaurant? It's just the popular place for teenagers to be? Uh, absolutely. They love it. I remember my, my children. They are now grown up, but they love McDonald's. I think that's an irony because Americans would never go to McDonald's in France if they want to be, you know, like temporary know, local. But the irony is that's where the local people hang out. It is one of, the, of our <laughs> ironies in our relationship. There are many ironies, which is the fun of it. You never learned to drive. No. And uh, is that common in France? No. So why did you never learn to drive? I don't know, because I had no time, because I was always driven by uh, uh, friends and, uh, and to be frank, uh, girlfriends. Uh, I don't know. This is my way of uh, my French libertinage, maybe, oh, a trace of my French libertinage. As an American tourist in, in France, I'm always looking for a good red wine. Is there a good rosé wine? I don't drink wine. You don't drink At wine? At all. You... I don't like wine. I don't drink wine. I am uh, so un-French. You're un-French, You yes. know, James Joyce said that he did not speak English, but that he, speak, he spoke English. U-N-E. 
G-L-I-S-H, English, English. U-N, English. So same. I feel sometimes un-French. Interesting. You were in the United States for nine months traveling around. Uh, did you find any food that you really were pleasantly surprised by? What was your favorite cuisine experience? French food. In America? You have the best f- French food in the world. Tell me more. I tell you, the best French restaurant in the world have often in America. You have great French restaurants in Los Angeles, in Houston, Texas, in New York City, French and Italian. You have three French, Italian, Japanese restaurants, which are, which are great. America is a cosmopolitan country. America is a rendezvous of cultures. So it's normal that uh, you have the best French food in the world. Is France experiencing a spiritual vacuum? Is there no... Uh The churches are quite empty in France. Quite empty. This is one of the differences between us. Your churches are full. Ours are empty. It's very difficult to find a real atheist in America. In France, it is very difficult to find a true, genuine Catholic or Protestant. But is there there was a Hindu uh, woman going around France earlier this year. I think her name was Amma. And yeah. thousands of people were coming out to hug her. You know, there's the different things happen, little cults and so on. Do you see a hunger for spirituality in France? Maybe or? we have a nostalgia of it. Yes, I think so. We have a nostalgia, therefore a hunger, but it is only a hunger today because uh, the churches, the temple, the synagogues, synagogue a little less. You have among the Jews, you have a real um, achievement of this hunger. Uh, you have a real feeling of belonging and so on. But for the Christian, no. Churches are empty. I've been talking with Bernard-Henri Lévy. Monsieur Lévy has just written a book called American Vertigo, A Journey in the Footsteps of Tocqueville. It's a report about his nine-month trip around the United States in 2004, giving a fascinating insight into our culture, and we have enjoyed a fascinating insight into your culture. Monsieur Lévy, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, my dear. Thank you, Rick. Thank you very much. My journey was 2004 and 2005, by the way. I finished it at the middle of 2005. The last stage of it, which was in Guantanamo, uh, was in, um, I don't know, May or June 2005. So it was nearly a year. It sounds like it was a fascinating experience for you, and I'm sure... It was a great moment, great moment of my life, great experience, great enjoyment, and I learned so much about you, America, and about me. Because the great thing with travel, when you travel, and you know that, Rick, is that you take news from the others, of course, but you take also news of yourself. Yes. It is a way to get informations about yourself. Amen. When and I, I did. When I travel, when I leave my country, I feel in so many cases I learn more about my own country and my own that position on this you. planet. That's what it is. So that is why this American Vertigo was such an enriching experience for me. American Vertigo. Bernard Henri Levy. Merci bien, monsieur. Merci, monsieur. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Our website has more information about this and other programs in this series and a link to send us your submissions for our 15 Seconds of Fame department. It's in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.